0: The idea that you're going to keep children focused when it's 90 degrees outside, the weather is good. They're just staring out the windows like, oh, I want to go play, but I can't because I'm learning fractions right now. Also, like Ricky said, think about summertime economies, Disney World, Disneyland. What's Ice the, uh,
1: cream uh, trucks. Uh, yeah, but Bush, I'm not a... I'm Bush, not a Bush,
0: the Bush place. I'm not a neoliberal corporate chill like you guys.
2: I don't care about those bottom <sighs> lines. Welcome to The Lost Debate, a show for political eclectics. I'm
0: Robbie Gupta. I'm Corey Bradford.
1: And I'm Ricky Schlott.
0: Corey, what do we have today? Uh, Busy news day today. Coming up, Uber and Lyft are trying to make sure their drivers can't hail a union. We'll talk about the labor fight playing out in Washington. Teachers are on strike in Minneapolis, while new data paints a sobering picture of pandemic learning loss, And an NFL wide receiver gets a full year ban for sports betting. Well, I know who I'm dropping from my fantasy football team this year. But first, let's talk about a major labor dispute happening here in the U.S. Uber and Lyft are pushing back against renewed efforts by drivers to unionize. The PRO Act, currently stalled in the Senate, would reclassify some gig workers as employees, a crucial distinction for those drivers' rights. Not surprisingly, the ride-sharing giants don't want that to happen. So, Ravi, unpack this for us. What's going on with this union dispute with Uber and Lyft?
2: Right, and part of what we're doing in this episode is kind of catching up on certain domestic stories that we haven't had a chance to cover, in part because there's so much focus, understandably, on Ukraine. And Mm -hmm. so uh, obviously, we'll keep coming back to Ukraine. It's super important. But this story is one that flew under the radar and one that I really want to point our audience to because it has huge implications on the future of the way that we live as a country right now. Everybody depends, for the most part, on gig workers in some way, like either for delivery services, from getting from point A to point B. And as you described, you have this new industry lobbying group called Flex, uh, which is an interesting name. Um, And this is their mission. It's to represent and be the voice for over 52 million workers and to provide solutions to issues that affect workers, consumers, businesses who make up the apps. Basically, they're representing gig workers. So this includes things like DoorDash, Grubhub, Instacart, Uber, Lyft, etc. And the stakes couldn't be higher. You know, they interestingly point to the workers in their statement. But I think this might have to do a little bit with the fact that these industries point to the fact that their bottom lines will increase 20 30% um, for employees if they have to classify them as full-time employees and not gig workers. So the, there's a ton of money on the line. These are not necessarily profitable businesses to begin with because a lot of them are in high growth mode where they're using venture capital money and other investments to you know, continue to build customer bases and grow around the country and the world. And so they understandably want to keep their costs low. A big question I have is, what do the workers here actually want? Um, And I'm interested if either of you have a sense of that.
0: So from what I'm understanding here, workers for Uber and Lyft are trying to unionize. And this new Flex organization is trying to stop that effort, essentially.
2: Well, Flex wouldn't say that, right? Uh, And and Uber has claimed, uh, Uber and Lyft have claimed uh, previously that they're not trying to stand in the way of unionization efforts. And I'll put that aside because that's a hotly contested issue. I think what's what's going on here is Congress is trying to pack, pass this law called the Protecting the Right to Organize law, which would classify the gig workers at these companies as protected under like these new provisions that would basically gut these so-called right-to-work laws yeah. around the country, essentially saying it is it, making it easier for people at these companies to unionize. And the Trade Association, I think, believes that there's going to be certain downriver effects to this where it's not just about the right to organize but about pension costs, health care costs, uh you know, the rigidity of schedules and and other things that will increase costs for these companies. And interestingly, like California had a law that was passed that did what this PRO Act is trying to do at the federal level and went even further. It wasn't just about the right to organize, it was about a whole bunch of other things. That law passed and then 59% of California voters rescinded the key provisions of that act in a referendum. And this is a highly democratic state.
1: Mm, Yeah, so I mean, I think that you can see the arguments on both sides of the issue of benefits and how you classify a full-time employee when, you know, on on Uber's side and on Lyft's side, they're saying we're, we're providing flexibility. You can work on your own schedule. You can choose your hours. You can work full-time one week and not at all the following week. And that's up to you. But then at the same time, especially during the pandemic and how many people lost their jobs in the service industry, you know, the, these were jobs that were in demand. People wanted delivery more and more. And so there are larger and larger demographics of people who are treating this as a full time job because they don't really have anywhere else to go. And so it's understandable that if they're working as many hours as anyone who works a a nine to five does, that they would want the same benefits. But it's it's easy to see how the the business model is no longer operating as it was kind of initially supposed to be as a gig economy sort of job, especially with the all the economic change that we've seen recently. So, you know, it's easy to see kind of both sides of the argument here.
2: Yeah. And let me give you some data on this. So Uber and Lyft claim that 91 percent of workers um, of the drivers work fewer than 40 hours per week. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so that's the the percentage of drivers. But there were some researchers who looked at Seattle, and at least, the, you know, this is one city, but they said, well, what happens if you look at the percentage of trips, not the percentage of drivers? Meaning like the overall amount of trips that happen within a city, what percentage of those? Uh, and they found that 55% of trips are being done by workers working more than 32 hours. So saying basically the majority Uh, of these trips that are being taken are people who are working something close to a full-time job. Like 32 is like right there on the cusp, Mm -hmm. obviously. And uh, as I've mentioned before, industry officials, you know, openly admit that this will make it 20 to 30% more expensive Uh, for them. Uber has told investors that uh, having to classify drivers as employees would, quote, require us to fundamentally change our business model and consequently have an adverse effect on our business and financial Condition And so obviously that's what this is about right now. And there's some trade organizations, like everybody thinks of this as like, well, uh, this is the workers versus the company, right? Mm -hmm. And that's why Flex, you know, tried to, they flexed by saying they're representing their workers, but who knows? They are running ads basically saying, um, Uber and Lyft, that the workers want this. Let's let's play uh, the ad that they're about to put out uh, in Washington, D.C. to influence legislators.
0: Let's say I want to work a few hours outside of my regular job to save for my kids' college, I can do that.
2: Whenever my mom needs a ride to the doctor, no matter the day, I can do that.
1: If I were to work 20 minutes a week or 30 hours, I can do that. When I need a day off to study for a big exam, I can do that.
0: Rideshare and delivery drivers work an average of eight hours per week.
1: When I need to be home
0: for my daughter after school, I can do that independence works i mean what a slick that's very compelling yeah Mm -hmm. i'm not gonna lie because i mean i mean and even this is the reason why they call themselves flex like there's a flexibility to working for uber or lyft that seems like you would lose a good bit of that if this unionization effort went forward
2: right and that's why actually i'm announcing here that all workers at lost debate are now going to be gig employees so don't worry (laughs) don't worry everybody you can go yeah you find your own health care your own pension (laughs) um so, uh, but what you that. can't see in this ad is that everybody here is is of a different race and sex, and it's just awesome, right? It's like yeah, this. It's is, a very compelling. This is very like well a, made. This is truly the melting pot. But they're not alone. You know, the Writers Guild of America, which represents authors, writers, freelance etc., came out uh, against key provisions from the California Act. They were they were clear to to specify that they support the right to organize. Mm-hmm. But I think that's what makes this tricky is that the right to organize is one part of a larger picture. And Mm -hmm. the the Writers Guild came out saying there are specific issues to our industry that we want to protect, like the ability of writers to protect copyright, which is not something that most employees get. Have to deal with. Like their copyright over their works, their flexibility, et cetera. And so that flexibility was really important to them. And you can go trade by trade to say, like some people actually like being classified as gig workers. I think that's undisputed.
1: Yeah, and I think it also depends on like geographical elements too, because that data of 55% of the rides being um, like almost full-time drivers, you know, that's coming out of Seattle in an urban area where there's constant demand. But, you know, if there's pressure on the companies to provide benefits, it might squeeze out people who live in areas where they really can only do this part-time as uh, in a a suburban area where there's not as much demand, where there isn't 40 hours a week to fulfill. So I think there's a lot of really complex things at play, especially because, you know, this was originally a gig Economy company, and now they potentially need to fundamentally change their business model.
2: Yeah, and right now, like, it's kind of murky for anybody who's ever run a company before the rules in most places about who can be a contractor and not are not always obvious. Mm -hmm. Usually you get get this advice where it's like this kind of multi-part test. And a lot of people abuse these laws. Uh, I think a a lot of us have been on the receiving end of this before. Yes, I have. But, uh, But also, weirdly, changes to the tax code make it so that if you are a gig worker or you are a contractor, you pay a lower tax rate. So some people really like it. But I'll just introduce one more wrinkle to the politics here which is, this is about unions, really, this first bill. And Biden is for the PRO Act. He mentioned in the State of the Union address, Grover Norquist, the, you know, the prominent um, conservative in D.C., he said the following about the PRO Act. He said, the PRO Act drastically increases the power of labor uh, union leaders to force workers to pay them union dues. This is a quid pro quo, the payoff in return for the hundreds of millions of dollars big labor poured into Democratic Party campaigns to capture the House, Senate, what I So basically what he's saying is this is, Democrats scratching unions' backs, yeah. allowing them to grow their forces, he says it, it guts um, the Right to Work Acts, and he also says this will lead to intimidation of employees because it, it requires employers to hand over data of th- about their employees to union organizers. That's that's his point.
0: And that's been a, a, a long-time criticism of unions, that, it, that the union leaders get too much power when uh, workers of, of certain industries unionize. But at the same time, how do you balance that with workers' rights and benefits that they need to yeah. live? So it is, it is a delicate balancing act, but there's no more powerful union in this country than teachers' unions. And I think you mm-hmm know all about that, Ravi. So let's talk a little bit about what's going on in Minneapolis. Thousands of teachers are on strike in Minneapolis right now, demanding better wages, smaller class sizes, and better mental health facilities for students. More than 30,000 students are out of school until the union and the school district reach a deal. But the superintendent there in Minneapolis says that the two sides are more than $150 million apart. So we really don't know when this will end. So after all this time, kids being out because of the pandemic, now kids in uh, Minneapolis are out. Because of a, a labor dispute there. So, talk to us a little bit about that. Robin. I thought for a second you were
2: going to say Super Nintendo when you were saying Superintendent. I almost did. <laughs> I almost did. <laughs> that would be more exciting.
0: Hi, Lisa. Hi, Super Nintendo Chalmers. I'm learning.
2: But uh, this is the first strike there in Minneapolis since 1970. And according to state data, the average teacher in Minneapolis makes about $71,500 last school year, uh, which is lower than the neighboring school district of St. Paul, which almost struck. St. Paul pays their teacher is an average of $85,000. Oh, wow. um, Superintendent Ed Gaff, um, he says the union's asking him to spend $166 million more than the district has budgeted. He says it's a simple matter of dollars and cents. My sense, though, is that if they get the dollars and cents right here, that they will be able to get kids back in their seats.
0: Over the last 18 months, Minneapolis public schools have lost over 640 teachers and support professionals. So they're definitely probably working longer hours, doing things that are outside of the scope of what their job requirements initially were. And so I can definitely see them wanting a little bit more for the, their time and their labor and their effort. However, again, you're talking about $166 million yeah. more than what the what's budgeted. It's like, how do you reach an agreement there? Yeah. Yeah. And I
2: think let's let's look at some takes from around the spectrum. You have, um, and we'll put these up for people who are watching at home, but I think it's important to just hear from people on the ground here. You have Megan Peterson, who's a first grade teacher and demonstrator. She says, it's it's not something any of us wanna do right now, but it's important for me as a parent. This is important for me as a teacher, and it's important for me as a resident of Minneapolis, for me to make sure my kids are taken care of. Uh, a you know, On the contrast though, Minneapolis resident, Brett Addison, father of three, said that the pandemic, uh, as arbitrary as it seemed, was at least justifiable. This just seems cool and indefensible and an unforced error. Wow. Wow. So you know, pe- there there are definitely competing viewpoints here, Ricky. Where do you come down on this?
1: Um, I mean, you know, the the 166 million is a huge gap, and they it sounds like they have a mediator. I'm I mean, I don't know the intricacies of Minneapolis schools, but obviously, it's it's really upsetting to hear that 30,000 students pre-K to 12 are currently out of school. And I can't even imagine what that's doing to the parents. But I mean, hopefully the mediator can be effective in getting finding some sort of middle ground. But that sounds like a huge gap. I have no idea how they'll bridge it.
0: Ravi, you're a former educator, in your experience, do these strikes ever lead to the things that the teachers actually want or do they just hurt the students more than they get for the teachers?
2: Yeah, I to be clear, I haven't uh, dealt with a strike, but I, I do advise uh, a school leader in Chicago who is in the middle of the strike there. And I think what's tricky here is I sympathize with the core point here, which is that teachers are underpaid in America. Not in every city in America, but in a lot of these places. And the wage gap between teachers and the rest of the comparably educated workforce was about 21% in 2018. Yeah. And wow. so, um, and that was that gap was only 6% back in '96. There shouldn't be a gap. You know, going mm-hmm. into teaching should pay more. We should be incentivizing it more. Um, but it's more complicated than merely dollars and cents. Because if you just put more money into the system, that doesn't necessarily incentivize people to stay longer. Yeah. It doesn't incentivize the right people to get into the work. And so I have a few things that I would do to help fix this problem. We have a huge teacher shortage in this country. And for those watching at home, I'm going to put on the screen, um, this is a report um, that was put out pre-pandemic by the Economic Policy Institute. And they projected an absolutely massive teacher shortage now This is before. They obviously didn't know uh, COVID was coming. And so we need more than just money within the system to do this. And actually, some of the things that are being proposed here are actually going to increase the shortage. If you actually decrease the class sizes, you're going to need more teachers. it's going to be more shortage, right? Uh, So I have a couple of things that I would do here. Number one is I would uh, incentivize people to go to the lowest performing schools. Uh, In New York, we had this pilot program called Bravery Bonuses. Basically, you pay teachers... Thousands and thousands of dollars more to go to the schools Mm. that are underperforming, um, which is a huge issue here. Uh, Another is to increase pay for teachers. I think we should dramatically increase pay for teachers, especially at the lower end of the scale, meaning teachers entering the workforce. One of the things that's hidden within these negotiations is that the most powerful teachers in the unions are the ones who've been around longest, which means they fight for, you know, pensions. Uh, Early retirements, higher wages at the end of the scale, more protections for seniority. Like in Minnesota, writ large, I think you can retire after three years. Now you don't collect your full pension, but you could start to collect some form of pension on retirement after just a few years in teaching, which is insane. Um, I would cut the red tape and the bureaucracy. Like in New York, there's a the teachers union contract is 200 plus pages long. In versions of this contract, you're only allowed to have one staff meeting per month. So it's like hard to even move forward the profession. I would use national service to incentivize people and combine that with uh, student loan forgiveness. So I'd say, all right, yeah. if you do five years in the classroom, especially in in a, public school in an underperforming district will wipe away your student loans right um i would leverage more online learning like they do in korea so that teachers can make more money if they're able to build an audience um, for their education linked to standards and i would get rid of some of these policies like last in first out meaning like right now in a lot of jurisdictions they fire teachers first who are the the youngest people Mm -hmm. to go into the system now that's that's terrible because those are the people who will stick around in the work those are some of the people who have some of the most energy so those are just a few of the things i would do to help fix this problem.
0: I think I've said this before on this show, but Ravi Gupta for Secretary of Education. (laughs) I think that uh, we got some we got some actual solutions on the table. Well, speaking of teachers and things dealing with schools, let's talk a little bit about what happened during the pandemic. Uh, Multiple studies show that children have fallen severely behind uh, in different subjects because of pandemic learning loss. Ricky, what have you found out about this?
1: Yeah, so this is something that we've been kind of people intuitively expected at the beginning of the pandemic with Zoom and watching kindergartners try to stare at a computer screen all day but um, the data is kind of rolling in more and more and it seems that students are really falling behind in a widespread almost uniform way. In 2019 for K to second grade students, which is obviously a very formative time for learning basic reading skills, student one in five students were missing their benchmarks nationwide, and now that is one in three, and the, these are the worst rates ever recorded. Wow. And there's a widening gap between white students and students of color. Um, some studies have suggested that there's an up to a sixty percent larger loss among students whose parents are less educated and might come from more difficult backgrounds. And you know, these are formative, lifelong losses. Like this is not these are the times when you make those skills that will help you through the rest of your life and reading comprehension and just those basic fundaments and so this is this is really concerning i don't even know how much it can be rectified um, going forward given that these are formative years lost and that doesn't even include the unquantifiable metrics here of emotional learning and social losses and you know i'm math is suffering as well but this is and yet another statistic that just shows that things are going really poorly and the divides in our society are worsening on an educational level, even more so than they already were.
2: And Ricky, is there any anything meaningful happen to, to, happening to address this, like at the state I or mean, federal level? I
1: mean, you know, it's one of Jill Biden's issues, but it doesn't seem that the uh, Biden administration has really done anything to um, propose any plans. There are some local plans to combat it on different like state and city levels, but, you know, in a nationwide way, that doesn't really seem to be the case. And, you know, we did Zoom as a, a, a way to kind of just be flexible to with the pandemic and there's not really a plan that we made at that point in time to decide, okay, how are we gonna fix this? And I think yeah. that's really where the conversation needs to go now.
0: Yeah. And Jill Biden, uh, I believe her her big issue is adult literacy and making sure more adults can read. I'm not sure if it's focused more on yeah. school-aged children.
1: Well this will, these kids are gonna become adults that have literacy problems because of these yeah. years lost. Yeah. It's so sad.
0: It's really sad. And it's just it surprises me how we just we we write education off as something that doesn't matter as much in this country but if you like at whatever age you are this is so important because these are the kids who grow up to be the doctors the lawyers yeah. the presidents the people of the future if they can't read and they're not good at math mm-hmm. then when we're all like super old the people taking care of us are going to just be like they're just going to be like dead ass bro I don't know what's wrong with you yeah. like they're not even going to be able to like fix us like it's, it's yeah. like well it's the it's the Frederick Douglass quote right it's easier
2: to build strong children and to, um, repair broken men. And it's like, it's, it's so much easier as a society to get it right early. And that, you know, when, when we started our first school, Nashville prep, we put it in North Nashville and for a reason, because it actually has the highest incarceration rate of black males in the entire country. Wow. Uh, and so that. It, and that is like a public policy that the city should have gotten behind way earlier because it, it helps everybody. But this dovetails with our union conversation, too, because one thing that's frustrating to me is that this if, if the unions and some um, forces within progressive, progressive circles had their way, we wouldn't even have this data. So there was this interesting New York Times article in the heart of the pandemic that was quoting Richard Carranza and the Massachusetts Teachers Association had. And they were saying things like, quote, we do not want to impose additional trauma on students uh, that have already been traumatized. And this was Carranza, meaning talking about standardized testing. They didn't want to test them, saying this is traumatic to even ask the question of whether you can add fractions without unlike denominators or read a sentence and answer basic questions about it. And this gets to the heart of the problem that progressives have, which is like they don't think that this court data matters because they can take it for granted. But like I've said before, like if your kid can't read, if your kid can't do basic math, it would be an absolute emergency to you. Uh, but they don't see the world that way because they just are like, oh, yeah, I can always count on the school down the street working for me because I bought the right house in the right neighborhood. So I don't care about standardized testing. But this data really matters. We wouldn't even be having this conversation if we didn't have this data.
0: Yeah, it's absolutely... Yeah. Yeah, all the stuff against standardized testing. I do really don't understand it, this notion that oh, it's racist or that it's somehow discriminatory towards certain students. But the people making those claims aren't even the, those students or their right. parents. It's yeah. people that assume that about these other people, which is within itself almost racist.
2: Yeah, and this is the the media is so they're culpable here. Here are just some headlines from across the spectrum. Gothamist: Some New York City teachers worry that so-called learning loss tests will exacerbate the problem. The Washington Post: What learning loss really means. It's not a loss of learning. <laughs> like I don't know, this is Orwellian oh, stuff. We're we're basically saying, "No, no, 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 no. Your kid can't read, but they can read actually. They yeah. just can't."
0: But uh speaking of interesting articles about education, the Atlantic had a very interesting article about making a change to school calendars and um I thought it wasn't a good article, but but Ravi here thinks that this change <laughs> is is actually really good. So basically they're proposing that Don't we Don't blame this on me. <laughs> basically, this article by Elizabeth G. Dunn from The Atlantic is proposing that because of mainly because of coronavirus and how it spreads more during the winter months, the colder months, her proposal is that instead of having kids be out for a couple months during the summertime, they should be out during the winter time. And so basically moving summer break to winter break. Um I think it's a terrible idea. Ravi, why do you think it's not a terrible I idea? I
1: second that as well. <laughs> yeah, well, I would
0: just say that it it has
2: not been the norm uh for summer you know, for us to give uh, kids off in the summer, like we used to be on more of an agrarian schedule, where you know it would be more on the planting and harvesting schedule. Yeah, wasn't that in before the 1860s? Yeah, no, but I'm just saying. Uh, and even before that, there there actually wasn't this idea that you'd give a kids a break. Like we're getting soft now. But but <laughs> but even beyond any of this, like as I've established in some of these previous segments, I am a friend of the teachers. Okay. Uh, and okay. so, and my mom's in the teachers union, which I should have mentioned in the previous. Yeah, segment. that would have helped. And so. I actually think before I become superintendent, I'm gonna become the head of the teachers' union. I think that'll be a smooth path. But I'm looking out for them. You know, I okay. know, I know that you have a you have a son. Yeah. Uh, and I get it. We got to focus on kids, but we also got to focus on some of these adults in those buildings getting sick. Those kids are gonna get sick too. You had on any given day during the 2020, 21, 21 school year, 10% of American kids were out. Yeah. Right. And You know, I know before the pandemic, these numbers were lower, but still always higher in the middle of flu season, right? And so you want to do what you can to prevent these incubators for disease. Mm -hmm. Also, like you kind of want to get to the point where like if the weather is really bad, can leave if they have the means, right? Because a lot of times parents are doing this anyway. Like I talked to friends in private schools and they're like always extending their winter vacations and stuff like that. I don't know. I just feel like like why not have the kids in the buildings? You can have awesome recess during the summertime. You can kind of combine summer camp and, and education. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> Ricky, what do you think about that?
1: Well, so the the Atlantic article is about COVID specifically. That was her impetus for wanting to Um, mitigate the spread of COVID. And I feel like maybe if this was a conversation we were having in 2020 about the upcoming school year, I'd be more into that. But right now I just, I mean, I don't even feel like there's a fundamental explanation of how this is going to happen. All the economies that surround Um, summer breaks, all the, I mean, communities that surround that, the weather, the mental health aspect of that. I mean, I can't imagine that in colder areas of the country, it wouldn't be super depressing to have your time off when it's freezing and you can't go outside and you're just looking at your iPad all day long. And I feel like that's only going to get worse and kids are going to still see each other and hang out indoors no matter what. I don't really feel like that's going to mitigate it. And I don't feel that of all the places where COVID is a concern, like in hospital settings, like in senior citizens homes and places like that, like schools aren't really, I think the number one issue there. Obviously there's, kids are gonna get sick, that's kind of part of childhood, but I, don't even understand. Like you'd have to worry about air conditioning costs. Like, can you even air condition all the yes. all the school buses and in in the summers? And like, I don't know. I just feel like kids can
0: handle riding but, a hot but bus. What, so kids are can say, also handle getting a little sick in the wintertime. Yeah, you know, but, but and this then, is what I'm build up their immune system. The you know?
2: rationale, according to some of these articles, is the rationale for why we even have this calendar is because there was this pseudoscience about people yeah. getting more sick during the summer. Yeah.
1: Yeah, but now it's a cultural mainstay. Yeah, but so are the whole world. Racism
2: was a cultural r- mainstay over oh, like, what, what about is a 101 yeah, yeah, yeah. over here? But, okay, here's here's my proposal here. Why do we even have any like breaks that are that well, long? Like, I, I you know? somewhat agree with yeah. that
0: With when it comes to, I mean, if people want to put their children in a school, like a, I knew people who went to all year school where they just did they got like went weeks off here and there, but they never got like a major break. If some parents want to do that, that's perfectly fine. For the rest of us normal parents, <laughs> um, summer break is important for a lot of reasons. One, I come from a place where it's 90 degrees every single day in the summertime. Um, the idea that you're going to keep children focused when it's 90, 90 degrees outside the weather is good they're just staring out the windows like ah oh, I want to go play but I can't because I'm learning fractions right now I could learn fractions in the wintertime just as easy as I could in the summertime but they're going to be more distracted in the summertime right also like Ricky said think about summertime economies Disney World Disneyland uh Bush uh, what is it called uh what's the Florida Florida guy what's ice the, cream uh, trucks. Uh, yeah but Bush, I'm not i I'm, I'm not i I'm not a neoliberal corporate chill like you guys I don't care about those bottom
2: lines what <laughs> I, I do is I care about that mom that nurse who has to figure out, you know, because the hospitals don't take off over the summer. Where is she? Like my mom. My mom worked two jobs. Like she had to figure out a place to send me. In, and then but I was the on the street. The hospitals don't take the
1: winter up. off either. What yeah, is hospitals the never hospitals don't, don't no, take that's the what winter I'm off. That's where either.
2: I come down on this actually, no break. And like. Bush Gardens, that was <laughs> <and laughs> the place. But here, here, yeah. I actually think there's something, seri- in all seriousness, like if, if we did the learning hubs that I talked about previously, yeah. mm-hmm. you could have a flexible schedule such that they're always open. Like in my opinion, schools like during working hours, there should always be an option to where to send your kids. We can call it school, we can call it daycare, whatever Mm -hmm. it is. Well, summer school exists. You should take for, yeah, but summer school is usually only available to people who have remedials. And it's usually a way shorter schedule, and and it usually doesn't even encompass every week of the summer. Like there's a phenomenon now where summer schools are shrinking and shrinking and shrinking, um, in part because it's hard to get people to staff these things. But if you had these learning hubs available all year round, you had a a more flexible schedule so that if, you know, remember I was talking about like if the kids are on a little bit more of an individualized learning plan and that the the recreational activities are are the things that are more standardized, then a kid can miss a couple weeks, come back and they pick up on the standard that they missed, right? And this would also allow us to solve some of the the class size issues that we were talking about earlier because all this data on class sizes, by the way, suggests that like in order to get the benefits of class size reductions Mm -hmm. for kids, you have to do. Like you have to decrease um, class sizes by like five to seven students from where they are right now, which is economically impossible. But what you could do is have flexible situations where like what I was talking about, put kids in bigger groups, tutor them, yada, yada, yada. Learning hubs could allow you to do this. So let's just, let's just get rid of the summer break and keep the winter break. That's where I come out on this.
0: There is a Will Smith song called Summertime that would not exist (laughs) if Ravi had his way. if,
2: If Will Smith couldn't read, we wouldn't have that song. So the system worked for Will Smith. Let's make because it work. he learned how to weed
0: in the winter time. I don't yeah. know that. I don't know that. All right, Will Smith, tell us when you learned how to read. I'm sure it was probably in a cold winter in Philly. Um, The NFL is banning a player for an entire season after he was caught betting on games. Calvin Ridley, a wide receiver for the Atlanta Falcons, bet around $1,500 in total. But some of those bets were actually on his own team. So even though he wasn't playing at the time, it makes his case look even worse. Still, we've seen players accused of actual crimes hit with far smaller penalties in recent years. So uh, do we think this is a fair punishment that really got mean an entire season off for betting like for on a couple of games that he wasn't playing in I mean is that fair I think the rule
2: against betting makes sense I think the proportionality here is totally out of whack like you know you could you can commit domestic violence as you mentioned get much much less time if you're gonna get any at all like I think the history of the NFL is that they swept these things under the rug for the most part so a year feels insane this is also happening as the Miami Dolphins owner, Stephen Ross, has been accused in a court document of attempting to pay Brian Flores, his former coach, to lose games, which is exactly what this is worry. The worry here is that you're going to be betting against your team And then tanking and throwing the game. That's worry number one. So that is like a valid aim, but like if the NFL were really concerned about that, we'd be hearing a lot more about Steven Ross. The second thing is here, like I I get it. I get why they care a lot about betting, which we'll come back around to, but this, I'm not convinced that they're doing this for the right reasons.
1: Yeah, I understand it too. But I mean, he was away from his team and it was they were strange circumstances. I understand that they would have that regulation just flat out. But to your point about the double standards in the league, um, players have lost two game or had a two game suspension for beating a fiance, six games for felony child abuse, four games for beating one of their girlfriends, six games for hitting women. And then he's going to lose an entire year. It just it's. Totally out of whack.
0: Eleven million point, eleven point one million dollars is, is is that he's not going to get for that whole season. Yeah, for, for betting 1500 bucks.
2: Well,
1: on a and, of games.
0: Yeah. the ringer asked a
2: couple of important questions. I'll put the first one out here. One was, um, why can't a player bet on his own team? If the idea behind banning player gambling is that we don't want to disrupt competitive integrity of the game, shouldn't we allow players to give themselves extra
0: financial incentives to win? Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's the question that. they're asking. That's
1: interesting. Yeah, he didn't
0: bet. Ag- he been, if he bet against his team, that would have yeah. been yeah, problematic. Yeah, yeah. yeah, like, yeah. That would have been messed up. Yeah. But he bet for his team. It's like, I believe in you guys.
2: Let like, me make the case for why, the, why you still wouldn't want that. Mm-hmm. Because. Uh, different players across the NFL talk, talk to, to, each to each other. other. There's yeah. like an inside information. They'd all essentially yeah. become sharps to the point yeah. where uh, there would be this cottage industry of, of information from NFL players to each other about this sort of competitive equities within games. Obviously, if you narrowly focus it just on that player and their own game, their own team, maybe. But I think what the the NFL just potentially trying to root out is any culture in which their players are engaging in gambling in part because mm-hmm. of the kind of information they all have access yeah. to. It's like insider
0: trading type yeah. of you know. Yeah, I, yeah I, don't think, I don't think people in the NFL should be allowed to bet on games just like people in Congress shouldn't be allowed to buy stock. But that's another conversation Agreed. for Same another concept day. Same concept in some <laughs> ways. Same concept, yeah. yeah. is it? Yeah. But the, the sports betting industry in this country is just insane right now. Ever since New York legalized sports betting, I mean, I think I see five advertisements a day whether it's on social media, whether it's on billboards, whether it's just on the TV, about sports betting. I mean, Ravi, what have you seen about this?
2: I mean, I listen to a lot of podcasts, like a lot of people, and you get these ads where it's one new sports betting company after another. And because of the weird regulation that we have in this country, they then have to read out this long list of hotlines that you can call if you have a problem. And there's not one national hotline. I don't understand why they just don't have one number and then you can like indicate what state you're in. Yeah, <laughs> um, It would yeah. save everybody resources, right? Uh, I find that absurd. I've never engaged in in sports betting. I, I would say, really never. No, I I would say like this is an area, um, Ricky, like where I feel libertarian. I'm like I, I think gambling on sports is dumb. I think most gambling yeah. is dumb. It's like lighting your money on fire. It's like buying a lottery ticket, but people should be able to engage in stupid activities, in my opinion. And yeah, so I mean,
1: I come down the same way where I I agree with the Supreme Court's ruling that this should be a state. By state decision, um, and not a federal like outlying and. Even though $52 billion were bet by Americans in 2021, which is just like an explosion of the rates, this is after there was already a $150 billion illegal industry. And so it's kind of just showing its face. Mm. And when it's underground and it's illegal and it's unregulated and it's not even taxed, I think that's worse. I'd rather just have it out in the open. And at the same time, if you're going to make sports betting illegal, why should we have casinos? It's the same psychological issue and we're not going to shut down those economies. Why? Why should states be holding lotteries themselves and allowing people to be irresponsible with their money and giving it to the government? I mean, I think it's, you know, I I think sports betting, I think these companies are profiting on people's um, weaknesses and people's addictions. And that's really unfortunate. And I acknowledge that. But I don't know that regulation is really the answer. And now we have this weird explosion of this because it was regulated. And that's what happens.
2: Yeah, this used to be the purview of organized crime. You know, we we record this show in Little Italy. And, like, this is where... This is, you know, they called it, what did they call it, racketeering or something? Racketeering. Like, uh, that is what juiced a lot of, ga- like, that. this is why the mafia was so powerful for so long, in part, was because of gambling. If you look at Godfather, right, they're mm-hmm. like, he wanted to stay doing gambling and not do drugs, which obviously mm-hmm. the drug stuff wound up being a, a dirty, part of it. a dirty, dirty
0: business. There you stuff. go, yeah. <laughs> it's a terrible Godfather, but... Yeah. Um, uh, well, if you hit 21 at the right table in Atlantic City, you, you, will, you will you will see that gambling is not that stupid, so, but it is kind of stupid, yeah. Uh, let's move on to our last story. So... Wrap things up today. This is a story that's getting a lot of pickup online. Ryan Coogler, the African American director of Black Panther, was handcuffed back in January after a teller at Bank of America mistakenly thought he was robbing the place. Okay, so a lot of people are talking about this as an example of uh, racial discrimination. Basically, what happened is Coogler goes into the bank and he, you know, he's wearing a mask. It's the COVID era. He's wearing a mask. He's also wearing sunglasses and a hat, kind of an odd. combination of things to be wearing in a bank. And uh, he takes one of the like deposit slips and writes on the back of it, you know, uh, his exact quote that he wrote on it was, let me find the quote. He wrote, I would like to withdraw $12,000 cash from my checking account. Please do the money count somewhere else. I'd like to be discreet. So he he slips this note to the teller. And the teller You know, when you slip a note to a bank teller, it's almost like this thing you know from movies. Like, oh, that I might be getting robbed. So she thinks that the place is getting robbed. She calls the police. The police come. They handcuff uh, Kugler. They also detain two people who were sitting in a car that were with him. And uh, once they sort everything out, they end up, you know, letting him go. He wasn't arrested or anything. But a lot of people are pointing to this incident, saying that he was being discriminated against when the police came and everything like that. I would like to add, though, that the bank teller was an African-American female, pregnant at the time, so she may have just been a little bit more paranoid than usual. Also, it's... Careful, Corey, careful.
1: (laughs) Being pregnant,
0: being pregnant made her more paranoid than usual. She feels vulnerable, yeah. Vulnerable. Does that... I don't don't know. I think that it's fine. It's fine. The the pregnant woman in the room says it's fine, so we're (laughs) going to say it's fine. Also, too... um, most i don't know if all but based off the video that we saw from tmz most of the cops involved in the situation were also african-american i will point that yeah, out as just well. a bunch of racist black people just yeah yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> maybe that's what happened what do we
2: think about yeah. this story that's I mean, my no my, i don't know For, i, I want to add a wrinkle to this which is this is atlanta
0: right this is not atlanta twelve
2: thousand dollar cash yeah what, what what is atlanta the capital of in this country
0: uh trap music and um In strip clubs. In strip clubs. (laughs) That's my theory about what's going on. No, he explained, no, he. That's, no. Uh, He explains (laughs) in the TMZ video that was released, he explains what the money was for. It was for a legitimate reason. And he also explains why he was going about it the way he was. You know, again, this is- And what what was that explanation? Yeah, Yeah. what was that? Uh, uh, Off the top of my head, I can't remember Oh, yeah, okay. No, but it wasn't for the strip club. I remember it for being like a medical No, but like, why
1: was he, why did he need to do all of the disguise and slip the thing?
0: He considers himself famous. He's the director of-
1: He is. He is. In his
2: defense, he's a super- Accomplished human being,
0: I
1: would oh, yeah. recognize I mean,
2: him on director, the street. But, but yeah,
0: I don't think he's the most recognizable. Per- I mean, if it was like Michael B. Jordan or something yeah. coming in the bank, yeah, yeah, maybe he would have had a problem. But I don't think the average person would have recognized him on the street. Yeah, let's watch a few clips of the video just to see how the interaction went.
2: Hey, sir, do hey, me a favor, man. Come this way. Well,
1: well,
0: before, Put your hand your back. Uh, you're
1: all back.
0: You got it. You got it. Is there any reason you doing this, bro? Give me
2: one second. Hold yeah. On. See, yeah, I don't get why they went. So for people who are listening at home, I, this is the first time I've ever seen this video. Correct me if I'm wrong. They they go to arrest him before they confirm his identity.
0: Yes, says, that's well the detain. So yeah. detained.
1: So my question with this is how much information? Because because she went and spoke to her boss, and I so I initially thought that she just panicked because she saw the note, and maybe just called the police with their emergency button that they have in their stalls but i'd be curious to know how much information the police have because if all they have is there's a suspected bank robber i i mean of course they're going to be on high alert because often that involves a weapon and you know whether they just they just need to detain him to make sure that no, no one gets hurt or it doesn't escalate or whether they know that he's just trying to withdraw from his own account, in which case that would have been more reasonable to verify his identity. But Yeah, just like, where's your identity? It's all where's around. It
0: seems like he should have, should have been be- able to just give his ID yes. to the teller with yeah. that note, and that That's, should have resolved a good bit of the issue. I'm yeah. not sure. It doesn't seem like he did that. The whole um, thing exactly is very sure. sticky, but it, it sounds
1: like he's he feels like Within the Bank of America, he said the situation should never have happened. However, Bank of America worked with me and addressed it to my satisfaction, and we have moved on. and It's interesting to hear that Some he's like yeah. he's kind of like okay, I'm done with this. And then Twitter is a little bit in a frenzy, and there's all the new like twists and turns to this story. But it seems like the whole thing is kind of just stupid in all it, ways and really unfortunate.
2: He wants this to go away. <laughs> Uh, I'm kidding. I don't know that's what's actually happening here but don't you think that's sh- what's well, more reasonable than I would be? Why would you take like 12K to the strip club? He's like, though. you know what? Let's stop talking about this uh that's what i'm seeing yeah that's what i'm getting out
0: of this you know i don't think he I, I, he gave a reason there's an extended video you can go to tmz and yeah you watch the extended video he gave a reason for why he needed that much money i don't believe he was going to magic city or any of the other strip clubs well, in how the do you atlanta know that area. name Corey. there's a well there's a greyhound station that's right across the street from it and i used to have to go to the greyhound station before i had enough money to ride planes in the atlanta area because <laughs> so you were
2: spending it on
0: I kidding. was putting it on uh, bus trips um, <laughs> <laughs> in the area. So look, I just have one quote to end this. This off uh, the biggest yeah, thing. Yeah, this over as quick as I possible. don't think. Yeah, I want to get this. Your older. wife's
1: gonna love this one. Yeah. <laughs> yeah.
0: The biggest thing about the discrimination aspect is that it wasn't necessarily that the teller was discriminating against him. I don't think that's what a lot of people are arguing here. It's more that he was detained and handcuffed. And I know, Ricky, you said that that maybe that was just because they didn't know the situation. They're being told that it was a bank robbery and everything like that. However, I would just like to mention this Ben Franklin quote. Those who would give up essential liberty to purchase a little temporary safety neither deserve liberty nor safety. So it seems like if we're in a type of country where you have to be handcuffed before all the facts are given, and there's no real threat at the time, seems like that's not. I'm a with very, you on that. Right this this is an not a very liberty. Response. You just place ask to for be. the
2: ID, confirm his identity, ask him to take
0: his mask off, like you do when you go
2: to the airport TSA, and they have to just make sure that your id matches who you are that's easy, easy yeah that's and
1: that also feels like something that the teller probably should have could have done. done like before yeah. the police get involved i because i just i feel like it's very critical to know what communication the police officers have in this sort of Absolutely. situation and you know if the teller if if this was an ongoing dialogue with uh, her boss and going to her supervisor to decide whether she should call the police it seems kind of valid to say well he is looking to deposit from an account should we just see if it's his
0: yeah yeah it seems it seems more but. But on that note We thank you all for watching today Make sure to subscribe to our YouTube channel And if you're listening to our podcast Make sure to rate, review, and subscribe We'll see you guys next time